Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pukolsky. Today, we are doing a live recorded podcast. I actually traveled to see this gentleman in Ontario, Canada. Dr. Stuart McGill joins me today. If you don't know Dr. Stu, he is the go-to expert for high performers who experience back pain. He is the number one authority in the world when it comes to back pain, when it comes to back research. Dr. Stu McGill is the guy on top of that. He's truly an exceptional human and a gentleman. He's a distinguished professor emeritus from the University of Waterloo, where he was a professor for over 30 years. His laboratory experimented with research and investigated issues from mechanistic back pain, ultimately how to rehab back pain, and ultimately enhance uh, injury resilience and performance. He's written books. He is the guy that governments reach out to when it comes to understanding the implications of back pain. Companies reach out to when it comes to doing research. In this interview, we talk about the mechanics of hypertrophy when it comes to back function. We talk about mindset and pain management and the anatomy of elite athletes and how that may be different from yours. Uh, the different pain patterns specific sp sports tend to exude and the requirement for stability versus flexibility of the spine. This is a really interesting uh, kind of divergence from the typical thought process. Most people think it's a very specific thing. Dr. Stu says it's, not, Stu says it's something different. Um, the world of strong athletes and major leaps in becoming a world-class performer and ultimately how to create a truly resilient back. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Stu. Um, feel truly grateful to be able to sit with him in his home and dive into his uh, life's work, really. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Bioptimizers. Uh, our favorite product, Mag Breakthrough, is still available to you, the muscle intelligence community, at 10%. This is a product that, if you're not already using it, um, get it. It's, it's always a great addition to any repertoire. will help so many different issues in the body. There's a, a countless number of benefits to magnesium. And the reason I choose Mag Breakthrough above all is it actually has seven different chelates of magnesium, all of which have a different potential implication in the body. Um, so you're getting a full spectrum to allow you to relax and wind, turn off your active brain after a long and stressful day, certainly after a long and stressful workout. So you can wake up feeling rested, vibrant, and alert. I take a few capsules before bed to help with my recovery and ultimately wake up feeling like a champ and ready to go. You know, I train first thing in the morning. So what I do right before bed is incredibly important to me. And every time I take Mag Breakthrough before bed, I wake up feeling better. I just feel like I'm not, I don't need the coffee. I don't need the stimulants or pre-workouts. My body just feels to have slept and recovered a little more effectively. Um, this is truly a fantastic product that in my opinion, blows all the other magnesium products out of the water uh, and, and, Bioptimizers is just a reputable company. I know the owners quite well. I know the amount of time, energy, and sacrifice they put into research, and I'm a big fan of their, their products and their company. So thanks to Bioptimizers, thanks to Matt Pallant and Wade Lighthart, both previous guests on the show. Guys who not only are entrepreneurs, but they, they walk the walk. These guys train every day. To be honest, they're pushing the envelope in many different ways, each of them kind of in their own way. So head over to magbreakthrough.com slash muscle. Use the code muscle10 to get hooked up with 10% off. Support our podcast sponsors because they support this podcast and we love to support you with credible, no cost to consumer information. Ladies and gents, enjoy the podcast with Dr. Stu McGill. 
is there something the audience could take away and say, hey, this is what we should be looking at? Or, or is it the type of thing where we just have to go to a professional to get assessed? I like That's what I'd kind of like to end. It's like, again, I'm fairly purposeful like you. I can tell. If there was a better way, I'd be on it. But there's no medical professional whose primary job and skill set it is to assess back pain. So they stay at this level of nonspecific back pain. Yeah. Who has nonspecific knee pain or nonspecific head pain. So you can treat a nonspecific entity and then it's just pure luck whether or not the intervention is matched and will help or will hurt. So I wrote back mechanic to guide the members of the lay public to do a self-assessment. And believe it or not, Many of them with their coached assessment will have a better idea of what the specific pain triggers are. So it goes through a bit of a questionnaire. What makes your back pain worse? What makes it better? Oh, gardening makes it worse. Go for a walk. It makes it feel better. Okay. We've subcategorized it now. But the next person comes in and they say, you know, I sit down, I get back pain relief. And yet when I go for a walk, it makes it worse. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I had to write uh, that book back mechanic to guide the lay public for that reason. When I was at the university, I got to follow up with every back pain person who came into the experimental research clinic. If they were told, you've tried everything, you've been to the chiro, the physio, you've been to the pain specialist, and you've been to the psychologist and had a surgical consult, the last thing left for you is surgery. If that was the category that you came in, in a two-year follow-up, 95% of them had avoided surgery and were glad that they did. And I can stand by that statistic. So that's not every subcategory, but once you subcategory, uh, subcategorize pain, you have a much better chance of intervening with a matched intervention. And the intervention itself isn't easy, as you know. First of all, you have to wind down the pain sensitivity. Well, how do you do that? Well, uh, if sitting uh, happened to be it, we have to come up with a better way to sit, whether it's a modification in the chair or it's an exposure thing where you only sit for 20 minutes or whatever the case may be. How do you subcategorize? So that's actually, I'm staring at your collection of spinal segments over there. I'm curious what the subcategories are. Is it, you know, almost always related to kind of entrapment of the nerves? Is it, as you say, deterioration of the, of the discs? What are the primary categories if you were to go through it that way? Well, I don't know how many models are up there. They're made by a company called Dynamic Disc Designs, but every single one of those captures a real patient and their specific pain trigger. Almost always, but not all. Almost always a mechanical variable can make the pain better or worse so you can understand the pain. A specific activity, a specific motion, a specific load, a specific stress concentration if you can change the pain, you get to understand the specificity and the mechanism of that injury. Right. So there's there's many. It's very interesting. Well, I, I will also say, though, that there are many people who say, well, I have no pattern to my back pain except when it rains. I get a crumpy pattern. So there's a different situation where I'm the wrong person. But if they have mechanical back pain, uh, we then go through a very systematic probing of their pain with an assessment that's provocative. We purposefully provoke their pain, understand the mechanics, then wind down their pain by showing them how to move in ways that doesn't create those stress concentrations, and then 
the final stage would be to rebuild their athleticism, knowing what biological adaptations we would have to create to make them uh, robust. But having said all of that, in our conversation uh, pre this, we were talking about sports and clustering and different pain mechanisms and pathways cluster around specific sports yeah. simply because of the exposure to mechanical stressors mm -hmm. of the sport, the culture of the sport, etc. So if we were to take uh, bodybuilding as an example versus powerlifting, that they'd be quite different common uh, pathways to pain. A jiu-jitsu player would have a different pattern once again, a professional baseball player, professional golfer. So there are variations, sometimes subtle, sometimes they're, they're quite uh, large between these different uh, sports. Yeah, so taking what you mentioned earlier, it seems like there's a dynamic nature between the, the requirement of stiffness and the requirement ultimately of the absence of stiffness, the, the requirement of fluidity to move through life. And there's a lot of components that lead people to be successful or unsuccessful in certain sports. And then sometimes what made someone successful in that sport, maybe it sounds like maybe the very thing that leads them down the path of uh, causing the repetitive nature of the injuries. You will not be a successful gymnast if you don't have a hobble spine, particularly in twist and eccentric. The uh, facet joints, which are these two joints posterior to the discs of the spine, do you see how those are what we call a closed facet? They're orientated this way. Yep. Whereas they have quite a variation. Uh, if you're a gymnast, they have to be open hmm. to allow you that mobility. I have closed facets. I have limited spine mobility. I will never be a gymnast. However, when you arch backwards with a closed facet, if you were to look at these facets, do you see how they glide beside one another? Yeah. Like this? Yeah. There's no stress, except if the capsule runs out of root. Whereas a gymnast, arch-typical gymnastic spine, they're orientated this way. So when they arch back, one bone bends the next one. So what is, if I said to you, what sport has the highest rate of spondylolisthesis, which is the fracture. So there is a typical uh, spondylolisthesis. Yep. These bones here have fractured, and then the uh, superior vertebra, the upper one, slips forward like that. If the facet joints are orientated this way, when that person arches back, you stress the pars bone, the very bone that's fractured there. When you bend forward, it reverses the stress. So these are called stress-strain reversals. If I wanted to work a hole in my shirt, I would create stress-strain reversals mm -hmm. and the fibers would uh, delaminate. If I wanted to bend the stick back and forth, that's a stress-strain reversal. And different materials and different biomaterials have fatigue lives. And again, that makes sense. ability to tolerate a fatigue life came from your parents in the beginning. And the very architecture of those facet joints that allowed you to be a gymnast means that when you arch back, you get even more stress on that bone. Mm. So you see why a spondylolisthesis or a spondylitic fracture is uh, has the highest incidence among fast bowlers in cricket, uh, gymnasts, dancers, etc. Uh, they'd be quite rare in other sports. So the very thing that allows you to rotate 
more to be a gymnast is also the thing that's going to cause these injuries. Uh, we were talking earlier about, oh, you look at record holders of different sports and their body is tuned to do that sport. So if we took a large man or woman, say an offensive tackle or someone like yourself, uh, it wouldn't be really wise for you to do a large amount of sit-ups as an example, because when you bend the thick spine back and forth, that stresses uh, much bigger stress strain reversals in the collagen fibers that form the discs. And yet when you look at the man who holds the record for sequential sit-ups, you can understand now why he has a very slender spine. So you can bend the slender rod back and forth and it does not create the cumulative stress strain reversal. So that survives, but I wouldn't want to put that sit-up champion. Simply due to the the amount of force that that spine can withstand, or like the the moment arm, basically, right? The the distance away from this from the center of the spine. It's both of those actually. Usually, the size of the vertebra in cross sectional area is linked to its strength. So they say, well, men can withstand more load than women. Is there a gender difference, or is it just a size difference? Men being bigger, and it's basically the size difference. However, training now makes a big difference. You train heavy. The end plate of the vertebra is simply cartilage and it bulges down into the cancellous bone, which actually act like leaf springs inside the vertebra. And you get tiny little fractures. And I can show you some of those if you wish. Now, that is a very minor micro compression fracture. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Now the conversation shifts. When you look at bodybuilders, you train heavy three days a week, typically, day off in between because you're traumatizing micro tears in the muscle and it takes a day or so for them to recover so you can go again. Bone is different. If you create that micro fracture uh, and then train again in two days, so you're now transitioning from a bodybuilding scenario into powerlifting or strongman, it takes longer than two days to gristle those microfractures. It takes about five days. So when you look at the, the very successful strong men and women and the uh, powerlifters, they might do very heavy squats one day a week and you think they're undertrained, but they needed those five days to scaffold in the new ions of bone, calcium, magnesium. They're ions, they get sucked in chemically with their chemical charms mm -hmm. and it takes five days to really get a robust callus. So the next time they train heavy, they've already scaffolded and recovered those micro fractures. So if, if they were to train on a bodybuilding schedule, the micro fractures run ahead of the ability to scaffold in. So a radiologist would then look at that and say, oh, uh, that person there on the x-ray or bone density scan, they have sclerotic bone. They don't know whether it's Ben Kulski coming in or right. some other person. If it's you coming in, that uh, sclerotic bone is the adaptation. That's what you've adapted with years and years of training. So going back to the original discussion, even though your vertebra are bigger, they're also a lot denser and stronger. Whereas someone else who hadn't had that training regimen they might have the size of the bone, but not the bone density, or they might have accumulated micro trauma. Yeah. So that 
thing, that feature that's reported by the radiologist uh, as, uh, you know, some poor patient comes in, oh, I've got scoronic bone. And I said, well, I'm damn glad you do when you need it. <laughs> yeah. One thing that came up as you're talking there is it sounds like most, uh, you could obviously correct me at any point if I'm incorrect, it sounds like most back injuries are, are repetitive strain, repetitive trauma, you do the same thing over and over and over again. Would that make an argument then for um, training with isometrics as far as like my goal is to accumulate strength in certain, you know, length, length tension relationships with specific muscles? Well, the answer is yes and no, but it needs a context. Sure. So if we were to take a, a jujitsu master, folks are aware of what that is now because of MMA. The, you know, if you take Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, for example, uh, basically you require your spine to become a boa constrictor in athleticism. Some people, if you're, if you're a real gracing practitioner, you don't put a lot of force into that. In fact, if you're going for a move that requires a lot of force in a highly deviated position, they will abandon the approach, set up the next submission attempt and try for that. So not require high strength. When you take a highly deviated spine and then put high strength through it, you've, you've really created a stress concentration on the uh, disc and uh, you'll get into trouble. So it's, it's uh, sport specific and it's technique specific. You cannot do isometrics if you're a Gracie uh, Jiu-Jitsu elite practitioner. Because the stress strain reversals on the collagen fibers will slowly delaminate them. Even without movement? Oh no, I'm talking about if they are practicing jujitsu. It wouldn't be a good preparation to do isometrics for a jujitsu player, but my point in all of that is don't use heavy load. You can use the motion, but not the load. Uh, I'm, I'm going to regress one level. In terms of disc injury, what causes cumulative uh, injury is power, force times velocity. So a golfer, a jiu-jitsu practitioner has a lot of velocity, a lot of motion. Keep the force low. If you're a power lifter or a bodybuilder with high force, keep the motions low. So you can do uh, spine isometrics and high volume, heavy repeated loading. But you know, I know who I'm talking to here, which you are, are uh, rowing, etc. You get the range of motion in the spinal muscles through clever technique using the ball and socket joints to get the range of motion you need out of the muscles. But if you start doing that with the spine over and over again, there will be some people who are touched by the hand of God and they'll get away with it. Most of us will not. So... Limb muscles, of course, right? It's full dynamic, eccentric, concentrics. I've been lucky to uh, measure, in fact, probably the only scientist in the world who's uh, had the privilege of measuring, you know, world's strongest man competitors, top bodybuilders, uh, world record uh, powerlifters. And, and how do they train? When I think of the man who has the strongest core, and rotational spine that I've ever measured. Do you think he does a lot of full range of motion side to side? No. He will stop twist. In other words, his landmine exercise, you know, where some people, they freeze their hips and take their spine through the range of motion. They're not the strongest. The strongest are the ones who can lock this in and then spin through their feet and through their hips. Right. 
In other words, they are stopping motion. But then when you compete with them, if they were to take an arm drag or an underhook or Greco-Roman wrestling or judo moves, they lock this and power over with the hips. Yeah. I don't care what athletics we're talking about. A good hip beats a spine any day of the week. And the great ones, when you measure them, are really hip dominant. The second best layers are spine uh, centric. The hip powder going into an isometric spine that produces ungodly performance. That makes sense. You said measure. What are we measuring? Tissue stress distributions through their spine because injuries occur where the stress concentrations are the highest. So I'm measuring that. I'm measuring three-dimensional spine motion. I'm measuring through EMG muscle contraction levels. And then with the reconstruction of their skeleton 3D motions, I get to know uh, force lengths, hurt, force length relationships, uh, force velocity relationships, etc. Uh, we, not always, because it's a very computational intense exercise, but we will measure spine stability uh, as well. Or we have done, I'm retired now, but that's where we, we left our uh, career. One of the nice experiments that I did just before I left the university was watching spines move under fluoroscopy. So you, uh, it was actually with whiplash people, but I'm going to give it a bodybuilding context. You will see symptoms of whiplash. They are really being accused by the medical system of faking it. They, it's been a year or two since right. I said whiplash now. And the medics might say, or the insurance uh, companies will say, oh, well, the injury is lasting longer than three months or 12 weeks, whatever the statute is. You must be a pain magnifier. You're a faker. Can you imagine how psychologically devastating that is when someone who truly has disabling pain and then someone says it's in their head? Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's just a travesty. We took people, they had normal MRI images, but an MRI image is a static picture. It doesn't show you the mechanics of pain. Uh, and then we would take the person through the range of motion, watching their spine with real-time moving x-ray. So it creates a video. You see all the bones. And then they will move and, uh, and then they, they can move a little bit further. At the time of that pain shot, the vertebra move and rotate and then you get an instability clunk like that. Right. And uh, it's associated one-to-one -one with their pain. In other words, they're not faking. We now have a technology that shows the disruption of mechanics. And when the center of rotation leaves the joint with the clunk, the center of rotation at the instant of clunk will be down here, yep. that uh, shows aberrant mechanics and uh, the instability. So now... We take that into our uh, discussion we had uh, before. When I'm involved with athletes who are big, strong, and heavy, when they lose weight, all of a sudden their joints go painful. So I'm w working with a current uh, Mr. Olympia competitor uh, at the moment. Another thing that we're measuring are the mechanics of muscle hypertrophy and what they do with joints. So if I can double the moment arm of the muscle through hypertrophy, I now create double the torque mm -hmm. more for the same load. I half the load on the joint because the muscle spans the joint. So if I was to do an arm curl, 
the, the, the five pounds or five kilo or whatever it is in my hand uh, is moved by this muscle that has one fifteenth of the moment arm. I right. need 75 pounds of force in the bicep to lift five pounds here. Well, you could, I could curl 50 pounds, walk in the park. 750 pounds in that muscle, but the architecture of the muscle now spans the joint. The joint is being compressed. 750 pounds for me to lift 50. Well, think of what's going on in the back. Someone's deadlifting a thousand. So you can pick up a uh, hundred kilo with half the load on your spine than I would being half the mechanical advantage. Right. So muscle hypertrophy unloads the joints, but here we're playing a game of trade-offs. Some people will say, okay, well, I'll just grow my muscles now and unload my joints. We'll hold on the trauma and the mileage you put on the joints to get the muscle bulk is a, is an entirely different other side of the equation. But going back to, we have uh, large men and women now, and, and really were relatively joint pain-free while they were training. Now, getting back to civilian life, they've lost the mass and how their joints ache. And they say, what's going on? Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to do this to become less painful and, and more healthy. You've decreased the mechanical advantage of the muscles. So the instability in the joints now, the ligaments are a bit lax, the discs have a, a few miles on them, they're a bit loose, but the muscle bulk and, and their mechanical advantage stiffened the joints very effectively. So then when they lose mass, now the micro movements are starting to appear uncontrolled. And it's the micro movements, it usually in shear that triggers the pain. Think of a knee now with an ACL deficiency. You do a drawer test to measure the shear. As these big jacks decrease their mechanical advantage, their ability to stiffen and control the micro movements decreases now. They start to ache. So I don't know if you can relate to that or not. <laughs> Talk in my language. It's true. And it's absolutely true. And, and as you said, I was completely anticipating you know, losing all this this little load on my skeletal system, on my muscular system. I was like, I'm going to feel so much better. And it's significantly worse. And I was saying to you, like, if I don't get to train three times a week, I feel terrible. My body feels like it's like, I'm like waking up in the morning like the Tin Man. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta move. But if I train, I feel like a newborn baby. I can run, I can jump, I can play. If I don't, I literally feel like my body's like contracting to hold itself together. The first one is once you start training and as dedicated as you and your colleagues were, it's almost a little bit of a deal with the devil in that you're committed to maintain a little bit of it now even after you're, you're retired because of the mileage on the joints, you're going to need a little bit more help and assistance from the muscles. Makes sense. So from yep. the mechanical advantage and that three dimensional mm -hmm. stiffness, enhancing joint integrity. The second part of it though, is life follows stages in terms of our bodies. As you get mileage on a joint or literal damage to a joint, micro damage, it becomes unstable. It loses stiffness. That is the definition of instability. You push it and you get a little bit of a micro movement. Over time though, you'll find, and, and I 
uh, lifted far heavier than I ought to have when I was younger. And uh, as I lost weight, I, 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 I did become more micro-movement unstable. But I'm 66 now. I've gone into the third stage, which is stiffness. The bad news is I've become a bit stiffer. Uh, the good news is all my pain is gone. So my prediction for you is you will graduate to this third stage. You're you're right now in a, in a unstable phase. You will go right back into a stable phase once again as the joints get a bit grumpy. I'm going to suggest don't do yoga and bending on your spine. Let it be. You know, your hips and knees are good. Use them, and uh, I think you'll retire a much happier man. Okay, it's possible to train to the level that I did without deteriorating your joints? Like even if your mechanics were flawless? I'm not qualified to talk about all of the other joints except the spine. Yeah. There is the very odd bodybuilder where I would say that's that's genetic anomalies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you're freak, so I hate to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me put it by the well, you were blessed by God. Yeah. Let's put it that way. But no, for the uh, vast majority, uh, you will have a few things to deal with uh, with your back. I I don't know too many who've gotten away with it. Uh, I should I should just back up a little bit here, Ben. What we do in life are managed biological tipping points. So let's just take vitamin D. Hmm. If you're vitamin D deficient, you're under the tipping point. If so, you're at a, you're in ill health. If you vitamin D supplement, you enhance your health, but only up to the tipping point. Any more vitamin D in additional to that crosses the tipping point and becomes a poison. So think of everything in life has this tipping point. All physical loading uh, follows exactly the same tipping point, but there's magnitude, there's duration, there's repetition, there's rest, there's food. There's all of these variables that modulate where that tipping point is. Maybe you were really good and you engineered and controlled all of those variables to stay just on the anabolic side of the tipping point, and you've built great resilience. And I can name a few very strong men who, who've really done well. It's not the majority. Yeah. Yeah, most people are doing it, just their only um, lever is the gas pedal, right? It's like, I'm just going to go harder. And that's wonderful at the time, but definitely it's, it's the idea of the faster you go in the car, the more precise your steering has to be. And if you don't know how to, you know, manage the steering wheel very effectively, inevitably you're going to hurt something. And I think everyone at a high level, I'm sure you could attest, has, has done something when you're, when you're, you know, it's like live by the sword, die by the sword. Even that was a favorite saying of my father. Even uh, well, my, myself, I wish I could engineer a little bit better, and I still screw up. The training was, yeah. Well, I still hurt my managed to hurt myself, and why did I do that? I knew better. So what are some of the common mistakes people are making when it comes to their thought process around back pain? Because you hear all these sound bites getting thrown on social media, and I would briefly kind of mention that. But so there's, you know, I don't even want to get into what I what I hear. I'm curious what you hear are the sound bites that are, you know, mis misleading, misguiding, or inaccurate. 
The problem with social media, it's a short sound bite without context. Mm. So my answer to your question is it's all misleading because none of it is relevant to the person. If we could establish the context, when a person comes here for a back pain consult, I'm, I'm here with them typically for at least three hours. Wow. I have to establish the context of their life, what their goals are, the mechanisms of their pain, all of the pressures that have caused them to fail in the past. All of these things matter. Uh, and then uh, I have to establish what are the mechanics that make their pain better and worse. Now, once in 200 people, the mechanics don't make a difference. It's only one in 200, uh, maybe even more rare than that. That person will have Lyme disease or that person will have uh, a cancerous tumor on their spine or they have uh, a, uh, uh, an aneurysm or something really nasty. Mm. Or maybe they have uh, spina bifida that no one ever uh, discovered before and something's actually rubbing on a raw nerve root that should have been uh, bridged with bone for protection. So if the mechanics during our testing here don't change the pain for better or worse, then I, I refer them back to uh, someone else and it's, it's saved their lives in, in a few instances. They didn't know they had something, uh, what we would call a red flag or sinister. But most of the time we can find uh, with great precision, actually, what the uh, load threshold is that causes their pain, and then we give them a movement hack around it. So say simply bending forward and tying their shoe, it's the act of doing that to their spine over and over again that keeps that, uh, if it was a disc bulge mechanism pressing on a nerve root, it keeps it raw and active. But if we show them, you know, I'm going to sit up now, like a weightlifter. But if I didn't, and they come in here and they keep their knees together, they slink, stressing and causing the pain. Their little toe is now going numb and out they get out of the chair like that. It's an impossible mechanic, but no one has ever shown them how to move in a way that uh, gives them confidence that they can navigate this pain. Spread your knees apart, get your feet underneath you, suck a little air, now you've stabilized the disc bulge. It's not possible to, to uh, recreate. Lean forward through your hips and pull your hips through. Oh, doc, you're amazing. That took my pain away. Well, we call that spine hygiene. Simply an appropriate movement pattern to avoid the cause and allow it to settle down. Disc bulges, which I've shown you several examples of here, over time will gristle and stiffen so, you know, how many years do I have to move like this? Well, son, I've got, last night I watched the NHL game and I had two players in that game right. who were managing very successful open fissure disc bulges. They're playing in the NHL. It's just they know how to not sit sludged on the, boat, on the bench, but they sit up, they can still be, and by the way, they don't tie their own skates. So tying their skates increases the risk of them having an acute attack during the game. If their trainer ties their skates, they can get through the NHL game without fear of a trigger. And, and some people laugh at this, but it's how 
we work so hard in understanding the precision of their trigger and giving them movement hacks to still compete at a very high level. So when a, a person off the street says, oh, you can't do that, uh, and I, I say, well, I, you, you don't realize <laughs> what, what, what the professional athletes dedicate themselves to doing. Right. So I, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I've given you context now. Yeah. You, you might hear whatever on social media, but yeah. until you have that, if you could spend a day here, and and see now i'm not saying we're successful with everybody not by a long shot but that's the professionalism of understanding and dealing with some specificity that person's mechanism in their particular world and you'll never capture that context in social media so it's talking about that then so a professional athlete bends over to tie their skate they'll sit up they're fine they tie the skate but 30 minutes 60 minutes two hours later back goes so how how is it that that preemptive event has loaded the gun to create the cascade that happens later is it something that they're causing a, a micro trauma an inflammatory response the muscles to tighten up and and just something they do later because and I, yeah I, I just let's, let's start that question i'd love to answer that there's an open fisher disc bulge. So the player that I was referencing uh, last night when uh, we were watching the, uh, the game, uh, that is very precisely the mechanism that they have as they bend forward with enough time now, if they just bend forward and then squeeze it, it takes some time for that disc bulge to grow. Now we can watch that uh, disc bulge grow in an MRI machine. I've, I've got a colleague who's a chief radiologist. He's, he's got an open fissure in his neck. There is no disc bulge, but when he does this for about 15 minutes, the bulge keeps growing and growing. And then yeah. all of a sudden, he's got the uh, uh, effect that is debilitating. And then through mechanics, we can work that disc bulge back in another 15 minutes and the symptom's gone. But it took 15 minutes for that disc bulge to keep growing, and it, all of a sudden it touches the nerve, and they, they have a full-blown, enormously inflammatory, debilitating uh, acute attack. So that might be an example for that particular person. But, you know, there's, there's so many different pain pathways. That's a typically discogenic back pain. Um, if the person had a facet joint, they don't behave that way. We do a lot of pattern recognition when we're listening to a person telling their story to help us begin the investigation of what causes their pain. Say they were uh, crack-backed in American football and their spine was extended and they had a micro-stress fracture in the facet joint or the pars bone that holds the facet joint on. That will be about four months of... Hmm a low-grade pain with a little bit of a sharper, uh, very local pain that they can put their thumb on, it doesn't get better within three or four days. But a disc could, depending on the uh, the posture. So you see how mm -hmm. it, the, the mechanism also determines the, the character of... Uh, yeah. I love your process. So you say you can't bring everybody in, you sit down, you talk to them for 45 minutes, so just based on their symptoms and the history, 
you can usually pretty accurately identify, okay, this is this is what it sounds like. Is that usually how that works? Well, what we do after the 45-minute conversation, I'll follow up with a few questions that we know have a very high signal-to-noise mm -hmm. ratio. I'm here to gather information, so I want the most information with the least effort. Yep. <laughs> if they, uh, let's say, well, that yes, I get a pretty good hypothesis as to what their pain mechanism is. We do all that upstairs. Then we come down here. So sit on the stool, sit upright. Do you have pain? No. Nope. Slouch. Do you have pain? No. Stay there for three minutes. Oh yeah, my right toe is going numb. I'm getting a pain down my thigh. Good. Better or worse? Oh yeah, no, that made it worse. Or maybe they might say, oh no, that made it better. That was the underhooked nerve root that I was yep. here. And then uh, I might uh, stand them up and do pelvic tilts. I might put them on the table and shear their spines and, and test activities, compression, shear, bending loads. And then I get into very specific uh, tissues. For example, let's look at the pelvic ring and the person says, well, I have sacroiliac joint pain. Most of the athletes who come here do not have sacroiliac joint pain. They have pain from the nerve that goes right beside the sacroiliac nerve. And it's actually, this is the mechanism, but it's referred to that location. But watch what happens. I will mechanically test the SI joints. I'm going to squeeze them around the iliac crest, watch the mechanic. Do you see that gets opened up mm -hmm. and compressed and the bottom gets distracted and opened up. Now I'm going to squeeze around the hip joints, the, the greater trochanters, watch the mechanics change, closes. And if one takes the pain away, the other increases the pain. In other words, if this one increases the pain. So are you literally just going to palpate and push into somebody's hips? As hard as I possibly can huh. to try and move that pelvic ring. And if I create their pain, I know with precision the mechanic that just created it. Now I go back into their training program. That didn't just come out of thin air. Right. Where did that pain sensitivity come from? Oh, well, uh, six months ago, I got a new coach, say they're a tennis player, and we've been doing heavy loaded squats. So I can race across the court, you know, extend it. Makes sense. And uh, look, you just, every time you do a split squat, this mutates this half of the pelvis anteriorly, this half of the pelvis is, is forward. You're doing that to the pelvic ring. Right. Now put uh, 50 kilos on it. And now you increase. And go fast. So uh, all of a sudden now we're finding the reason for that particular pain sensitivity or injury or whatever it is. Let's change the training. Let's figure out a more clever way. And by the way, why... Do you even need to do those split squats? Has anyone examined the demands of your sport? Uh, we spend a lot of time here examining the demands of the sport, and then we test the athlete for those demands specifically. If they don't need it in their sport or they're meeting the required demand, don't train. We train the things that they need but don't have. So that's all part and parcel and this uh, assessment session. Yeah, so that's a really, you were talking about that before, the pursuit of strength, how what it takes to pull it out of your body. That was an interesting, um, really interesting conversation we had earlier today. I'd love to go there if you are open to sharing your insights. Well, we were discussing about 
some of the uh, very strong people that I've measured and, and worked with, uh, two world record uh, strength performances. And uh, I was mentioning the podcast that I'd done with Bill Kazmaier, World's Strongest Man, yep. and, uh, people like Ed Cullen and uh, uh, Martin Leshus, the, the current uh, uh, strongman champ, uh, people like uh, Blaine Sumner, who has, I believe, I don't know if he still has it, but the highest Wilkes score, uh, powerlifting uh, score, and, and Blaine is, uh, again, another fabulous athlete. And what we were talking about was what differentiates these people from pulling off world record performance. I, th I think of Brian Carroll, who uh, I worked with, and we wrote that book, Gift of Injury, together. And uh, post-injury rehab, he got back and squatted the world record of 1,306 pounds. And uh, I said to him, you know, do you think you'll ever do it again? He says, no, I can't. That was the perfect lift. I've only ever had one perfect lift, and that was it, which was kind of interesting. But we talked about when, when you're in the room with someone who can do that, to even put, say, twelve or 1,300 pounds on your shoulders and stand there, strength is a thought, and that thought has to be converted into pulse trains, which then go down the uh, nerves to the muscles. They are so dense, and if you're aware, the hairs on your own neck stand up yeah. with that density of neural drive, as we would call it in, in a scientific sense. Yeah. It just burns. It's incredible. To get, at, and, and one step back from that, well-documented, a woman will see her child trapped under a car, perhaps. Well-documented, she goes and picks up one end of the car. She avulses a bicep. She burst fractures a vertebra. Uh, but she picked up the car, and her kid was extricated. So we all have this somehow ability to dampen out all the fuse boxes that are there to allow us to survive so mm -hmm. we don't tear up our bodies. But the athletes who are able to achieve this somehow do. And this fascinates me. And the, the psychology of it, there's a mental state where you have to get to where you're willing to commit murder on your own body and be willing to tear it apart To uh, And hopefully your technique is good enough that you know how to survive that overriding of all of the safety systems. But uh, the, the mindset, to taint your mind there, uh, I talk about it as, as the dark side, mm -hmm. half across the line, and you know what I'm talking about, to go into that zone where uh, they might do it with heavy metal music, banging their head against the wall, swearing, getting into a rage where it's so dark that they are able to convert that thought into the densest possible uh, neural drive. And then you take... The only exception that I've ever been able to find all of these strong performances is Bill Kazmaier. And, and I don't know if you know Bill. He's, mm -hmm. he's Yeah, he's a lovely, it's amazing, wonderful, wonderful man. So kind. Um, but he says, it's the power of the Lord. It's the light. And when you're with him and he's he's getting primed, as I, I call it, um, he, he gets goosebumply, pitifully, goosebumply. <laughs> 
pimples yep. and then the beads of sweat and now he's ready to compete but he says it's the light that invades my body and that allows him to have the conversion um but uh, you know brian carroll and blaine and whatnot if, if they can't reach on a particular day that that murderous dark frame of mind they're 200 pounds off there do you think with bill do you ever ask him if it was always that way because i'd be curious Let's say in the beginning, without question for me, it was just, just the darkness. And I, and I craved the darkness. I was like, I want to go into that. I would, I would seek it. But eventually I learned how to create that level of intensity. I think very close to that level of intensity without necessarily having to go there because it became a skill where, whereas the beginning, it was felt like a trait It almost became, or maybe in the beginning it was a state and then it almost became a trait. So I'm curious if Bill had a transition. Well, I, I can't speak for them as individuals, but my observation is they all have something in their experience, whether it's growing up and a, and a personality trait, that they're able to go there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it usually was uh, something that happened to them that wasn't good. Mm-hmm. They might have been battling their father or an institution or... Uh, something that had really happened and uh they were able to go to this very uh, dark place and create that but i agree with you as well it is a skill and uh, but you know i i think of some of the combat athletes as well who uh i have never met an unintelligent one despite what people think they're usually incredibly eloquent and deep thinking and their darkness is slightly different in that they will say, I don't feel alive until I'm close to death. Hmm. And they thank their opponent for taking them there, which is a really weird. Oh, I get it. I know. And that opponent could be a, a barbell as well from a, uh, a Polish uh, uh, strength background, which uh, we can talk about that eventually if you like. But the respect of strength and all that that bar is in terms of being an opponent is the epitome of Polish strength. You know, if you walk up to a platform in Poland and you move the bar a little bit with your foot, you will be shunned. Don't step over the bar. You you would never do that. So the culture of respect uh, as that bar being an opponent maybe is the surrogate for creating that honor. That bar is going to pull the greatness out of me. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there because the the character that's that's developed in the depths, the deepest depths of those hardest moments, in my opinion, is is what again, you could argue in both directions. You could say either the person who's pursuing it had that to begin with, or that's what's developed as a result of going into your darkness, going into those deep moments and overcoming your fears and overcoming the the excuses and overcoming everything that exists in your mind. It'd be an interesting exploration to you know, discuss with with these guys to reach that level. Like, what what is that, right? Why what is that there? How do we get there? And what which came first, right? And and it, you know, you could also argue that the people who pursue these types of things, it's their destiny. It's like this is like I know for myself the challenges of my youth. I always say like I needed bodybuilding. I hope to goodness my children. Everyone's like, hey, you want your kids to be a bodybuilder? I hope to goodness they don't. Like if 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 they need it the way I needed it, I'm I messed up as a parent. And so I, I wonder, it's an interesting psychological 
you already know them, I'm sure, but I could name a, a few athletes where that would be the most fabulous panel to listen to. They're all very honest men and women. I was curious in your comment of you, you said you screwed up as a parent. And one of the hardest things with me as a parent was to know when to be hard and when to be soft. And uh, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of softness. <laughs> uh, much more the opposite. It made you who you were. It made me who I was, although I never got close to the uh, the strength side of things uh, that you did. But how much of that? Where's the balance with raising your own kids? Because uh, you, you, you want them to have a little bit of hardness. It's the perpetual uh, dialogue in my head. And, and I, you know, recently I was thinking about probably the reason biologically for having a mother and a father is exactly that. Like, I think the mother has to be this this goddess of unconditional love and acceptance and, and the father's meant to be like the driver of hunting. Like you need to become a hunter. And, and no, I'm going to recommend you for a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, that's, that's my belief. And, and the more you, you diverge from successful marriages, the more the children have the absence of that. They don't have the unconditional love of the mother. They don't have the constant, just like pushing to be better, pushing to like, here's the things you need to be as a dad. Because I don't do that with my kids. I'm I'm much softer. I've grown to be much softer with them than I would want to be. Like I, I want them to uh, push. I want them to to experience discomfort. And, and I want them to know they can turn around and I'm going to be right there at their side. But in order to do that, they would need, I need to know that they need to go home and have complete unconditional love and acceptance and, and be able to relax in, in a peaceful, serene place to recover from that. Whereas if they don't have that, then I have to be both. And that's a really hard uh, game to play as a dad. You might find that changes as well. When my kids became adults, that whole game changed and I've become much, much softer. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And uh, I'm not a grandfather yet, but... Uh, one of these days, uh, I know I'll be a better grandfather. <laughs> I was lost. It's less pressure, right? It's like, because I, mean, I can just want your kids to know this world can be a, an amazing gift and it can be a huge challenge depending on which road you decide to take. And you just want them to take the right road, whatever the right road is for them, right? And you want them to be, I, I want them to be equipped. And uh, so exposing them to enough challenges and hardships where they become resilient. And, and so I always say like, if nothing in your life is hard, then everything in your life is hard, right? Everything, everything, every step you're going to run into is like, that's just so hard for me. It's overwhelming because everything before was easy. Yeah, that's uh, very JP-like. It just seems to make sense, doesn't it? Like, I'm going to ask you a question, man. Shoot, of course. We know who you are and where you came from. And one of the challenges that I have is a very physically imposing athlete or their team will ask, can I assist with their back issues as they are returning to civilian life? And it is a very different consult than it was if we were on the building side mm -hmm. close to getting them there. What's the psychology like when people hear the name Ben Pakulski and they see the image and in your own mind, you have to be that image? Now you're deciding, I'm going to return to a civilian life, with, which means detuning my body and letting go of all of that stuff that you had to build in, with the most exceptional dedication. And people will recognize 
you because of the guy who was so so visually impressive. Yeah. How do you? Because not very few have the strength of mind to do that. Yeah, I feel like um, bodybuilding wasn't who I am. It's what I did, and I feel like I needed it to overcome deep pain, deep fear, inadequacy, like all all emotions, and so. For me, it was my battleground. It was my training ground. And to leave it, I still feel like my identity is, is in many ways still wrapped up in bodybuilding. Like still, you still have some psychological unconscious pull to look a certain way. But as I said briefly prior to us recording, was this is a new purpose. And, and if a bodybuilder can take the level of focus and purpose and drive and find that new direction the sky's the limit, right? As you say, like there's very few people in the world who can do what bodybuilders do as far as level of discipline and focus. And so it's it's probably very hard for most athletes that any any type of athlete to find a new purpose that ignites them at the same level as that childhood one did. But if you can find it, that's really been my new uh, new direction. It's, it's how I've been able to transition away and be completely comfortable with not having to be the biggest guy in the room anymore. There's still some uh, some egocentric drive when I walk into a room because I'm always I've always been the biggest, the fittest, the you know the the whatever all the the words and to not get the attention anymore. I notice it that whereas before it was like everyone's head looks. Now I'm like I'm right, stuck in. I'm like am I okay with that? And I'm like yeah. This it this it doesn't have to be that anymore. So I accomplished everything I ever wanted to accomplish. I think that's another thing is a lot of athletes don't get to do that. I did it very young, and uh, there was there was nothing else left for me to do in that sport. You know, yes, I wanted to be Mr. Olympia, and my children were born. And I was like, I can't. I, I literally sat there and made a conscious decision to, and I said, Do I want to continue to pursue this and know that I don't believe that I can be the parent I want to be? And I made a conscious decision and said, there's no way, like there's, there's no chance that I would pursue this because I literally played it back in my mind. I'm like, what would it look like if I was standing on stage holding the sand down in my hand and saying, when this Olympia and my kids say, you're a terrible dad, you're never there. And I was like, no, like, could I have done both? Maybe my belief was I couldn't just because I knew how I was in bodybuilding. I was the, the guy you said, I was, I was ruthless. I was an animal. And I was like, I can't, I personally couldn't do both. And so that's why it was, it was more than reasonable for me to say, I'm going to compete a little bit more. I'm going to lay it on the table. I'm going to do all my, the best, I'll do everything I want to do and then walk away. So I left on my terms. And I think as many athletes get injured, they get cut, they whatever, they, they don't leave on their own terms. So if an athlete could preemptively say, here's my terms. And when I accomplish this, then I'm going to decide to go. I think it's easier at that point to let go of the the need. Because as you know, most athletes, not most, but many, need what they do you know they want to do it but they also it's, it's some like deep drive some pain some was we spoke about so if we can let go on your own terms for me i'll speak for myself because i was able to let go on my own terms i was yeah completely at peace with it good for you that's uh doesn't seem common does it no no, no. it's very uh uncommon the uh People say, well, when, when does the psychological really take over in my line of work? And uh, it's probably the heaviest in those situations, yeah. getting someone to let go and they don't have one more fight left in them or one more show to prepare. And they just want so so intertwined in their identity. You're becoming wise. 
to my son says about my my great beer, my wisdom. I'd love to hear more about this this uh, this phenotypical um, kind of expression of strength that exists all around the world. You talked about that, and that's yeah, a different touch. If I'm convinced, I, I I this is only my impression from working with different athletes, but I think uh, there's a God given strength gene in Finland, for example, and in a lot of Finns, they have a superhuman. Yeah, amount of strength and explosive power if they're taught how to uh, unleash it, and that's just God-given. Mm-hmm. There's uh, certain hip architectures that allow you to run really, really fast. If we look across a uh, Caucasian uh, femoral head here, um, the highest rate of hip dysplasia in Caucasian Europe is Poland. I don't know if you knew this. So hip dysplasia is a very shallow hip socket and the hip will dislocate like this. If you can get past the risk of hip dysplasia as a youngster, that shallow hip socket allows you to deep squat. Deep squatting with the knees together is what allows an Olympic lift. Uh, Where do the Olympic lifters come from? Bulgaria, Hmm. Poland, Ukraine, uh, Western Russia. Uh, and and there's some of the uh, Asian nations as well in the lighter weights. But uh, it's interesting that if you don't have that shallow socket, you cannot be an Olympic lifter. If you don't have the gift of uh, hip external rotation, you will never be an Olympic lifter. Um, the polar opposite, oh, by the way, let's and, and a little bit more on the athleticism, not only does that shallow hip socket give a deep range of motion, to allow the deep squat and not have stress concentrations in the lumbar spine. When you measure the power production, it's ungodly out of the hole. So the deep squat and the rise, big power production. Typically, the failure is at lockout. So once the weight gets a big power off the floor, when they get with that architecture, it's not favorable once they get the weight past right. their knees, and there tends to be a higher failure rate at lockout. The polar opposite of a shallow hip socket is, uh, and and uh, hip dysplasia is femoral acetabular impingement, which comes with a deep hip socket, so that the femoral neck collides with the uh, yeah. hip socket. Now, the highest incidence of that is in the Celtic nations, Normandy, France. Scotland, Ireland, and and you know what my name mm. is, uh, and uh, I'm hip replaced. Very high rate of hip displ- of uh, hip replacement because of the damage to the labrum uh, if you were to deep squat. And when you measure the power production out of the hole in the arch typical square Celtic deep hip, yeah. it's very poor off the floor. But once the weight passes the knee, they okay. fail. Right, tremendous second gear, so to speak. So it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting. I'm not saying every pole has a shallow hip. Sure. What drives that power to the hole in that case? It's because it's not obviously just hip orientation that drives it. It's going to be some muscular orientation that's driving that, that power to the hole. And, and the... well, th- that's true. Uh, but I don't know what the muscular differentiation is. Um, hmm. uh, it, it's just more, if you're not impinging, as soon as you impinge the, uh, labrum, the pain will inhibit. So as soon as you get pain in your body, a fuse block registers and something shuts down. So we've measured, for example, when we were able to create kick pain 
in uh, patients, we measured the ratio of neural drive to the hamstrings and the gluteal muscles. Hip pain inhibits the gluteals and you become hamstring dominant. So as soon as you get impingement, uh, you lose the ability to drive with the glutes. So I don't know if it's a muscular architecture. You know, you get pain and you limp. Right. Well, it, your body will limp in many ways, depending on. So one of those sound bites I brought up earlier about what ha- what are what's getting thrown around the internet is like the glutes are probably the most the s- most significant influence on spinal stability, lower back stability, pelvic control. And so that would make sense, right? Because if someone's hip is in some way inhibited or some way impinged and the glute turns off and you could turn the glute back on, you may give you better mobility through the, or better control through the hip, better force, force production through the hip. Absolutely true. But there's another very interesting thing, and it goes straight back to plain old biomechanics. When you become hamstring dominant, so both the hamstrings and the gluteals, when a person is inhibited in the glutes because of the pain fuse box, the line of action of the hamstring jams the femoral head anteriorly into the labrum. In other words, it increases the jamming. Crush. Whereas the gluteals, when they extend, they glide the femoral head back. Right. So if you can get more glutes, you we were talking about Pavel earlier, what? some of his exercises of dropping down into the squat, wiggling side to side, more glute, more glute, and then you can go deeper into the squat, yep. avoiding the impingement. So these are all techniques to become a little bit more gluteal dominant, but that's the architectural difference of those two muscles and how they actually impinge on the uh, yeah. hip interface. I spend probably uh, 30% of my weekly workout time on glute training and glute activation. That sounds ridiculous coming from a man, but I know that if I can make my glutes work, my knees don't hurt, my back doesn't hurt, my hips feel great, and if I don't do enough of it, it deteriorates. So I'm like, I spend an inordinately large amount of time on like making sure the glutes can activate at all aspects of the range. I, I hope people hear that yeah. because can I give another little explanation of why that wisdom is so powerful? Yeah. When I extend, so I'm just going to do a little bit of a, a jumping or a lifting kind of a mechanism. Yep. Assume I have an artificial knee with no muscle. I could still lift and you couldn't tell the difference by looking at the kinematics. Right. In Can you imagine if I had a motor here and I could turn that to see how my gluteals are extending my knee? Yeah. Do you see how my gluteals are plantar flexing my ankle? Yeah. So because we live in this articulated linkage, the gluteal power is able to radiate out joint by joint by joint, having an effect as long as the end is locked into something. Closed chain foot's locked in on the ground. So you definitely do. I've measured this. <laughs> when you become gluteal dominant, you unload your knee. Talk to me about what's happening in the pelvis around back injuries, because we often hear... You know, the diaphragm diaphragm's controlled. Uh, obviously, diaphragm has a significant impact on the the rib cage and the intercostal muscles and how that come, wraps around and attaches on the spine. And then we get into the pelvic floor. And if the diaphragm is dysfunctional, you know, the pelvic floor can also become, you know, quote-unquote dysfunctional. I'm curious what your um, research and, and, and exploration has discovered around those two specific aspects and how they're playing into back pain. It's a pretty broad question. Well, yes, no. 
I think when you look at the science on the pelvic floor, it's almost always measured in either a zero load or a low load environment. They're not looking at athletes like you and their pelvic floor. And uh, pardon the expression, but have you ever tried to squat while at the same time sucking your balls up? Only if I'm teaching somebody that. I, I just, yeah. Okay. It's, it's, it's terribly inhibited. Oh, you, know, you can't do it. In fact, you do the opposite. Right. Women and strong women do as well. Push out. They ha you have to push out because what you're trying to create is stone. Right. If we look at the architecture of something simple like pec major, uniarticular muscle spans the shoulder joint, origin on the rib cage, insertion on the arm. If I push you with pec major, so say I'm going to really work on bench press, get some pec major strength. Then I stand and I push you distal to the uh, shoulder, the ball and socket joint. It creates the desired effect, the push. But look what it does on the proximal side. It collapses me. Mm -hmm. That muscle collapses me in the push of an opponent or a door or whatever it happens to be. So that muscle is actually neutral on its own for creating the end effect. But as soon as I lock down my pelvis, I lock into the ground, 100% of that muscle activity just went to driving my arm now. Right. Arrested the athleticism that wasn't helping. The So proximal stiffness unleashed distal athleticism. Right. Yeah. So it's the same with the hips and uh, the pelvic floor and the diaphragm as a unit. Can you imagine a world-class sprinter where if they didn't lock down the core when the glutes exploded, they would cause this bending mm -hmm. on the spine. It's an energy leak. Arrest the proximal motion and drive it to the distal side of the joint and you will get a faster thigh uh, extension and, and faster sprint speed. So I can go through example after example of this. You're trying to create pulse strength and that ball and socket joints create pulse strength, but they're linked by a fairly stiff core. So when you look at uh, striking in combat sports or throws or whatever, uh, the more stone-like you can make this, the more athleticism there is either side of the, uh, the jump. And so that brings up what you spoke of earlier, training abdominals with, with, you know, isometric, you know, exercises that are creating rigidity, the ability to not move, then transfer force to the, to the limbs makes a lot of sense. Um, it's how the strongest men in the, and women in the world train. This is more isometric. These are obviously more dynamic. Yeah. So I'm curious how, how the orientation of the rib cage relative to the pelvis plays into that and how much we could, we can actually affect it. So, you know, I have some people who are hyperlordotics, you know, rib cage flare, uh, some people who are super rigid through the thoracic spine, often the same person. I'm, I'm curious, um, is it a requirement in your experience to get maximum output through the spinal muscles to have the, the rib cage oriented over the pelvis in what we'll call like a stacked alignment? Or you may have a different term. Well, for strength, I would say yes. Yeah. But if you're a swimmer, I would say no. So if I didn't have 
thoracic extension mobility right. and I was a, uh, uh, a freestyle swimmer, yeah. my power production would be here and I couldn't reach right for the, do you, you see? Sure. Yeah, you want to be able to extend How for sprint? Sprinters have a lot of lordosis. You cannot sprint with a flat back. Well, I, that sounds absolute. The best sprinters in the world have more lordosis. And the reason for that is if I'm sprinting, the footfall has to occur behind my center of mass. So you've got to have footfall behind the center of mass. And then the power transfer to the ground has to go through the extensor range. It's a great advantage to turn my pelvis with lordosis because I have more extensor power. Right. But I won't be able to kick high in martial arts. So you'll notice a lot of the fighters have a flat spine. And uh, if you've ever watched them sprint, it's not a pretty sight. So interesting how one... So do you think it would be possible? I'm sure the answer is yes, but the likelihood of someone being effective at both of those... Like, is it, is it the circumstance where one is going to catabolize the other? Like, if I want to be really good at, at martial arts, and my, I, I default to a postured pelvic tilt, so I kick somebody in the head, does that take away from my sprint ability because of where I'm, I'm positioning strong? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's why when you, uh, it's always fun to watch the uh, uh, Olympics and the podium medal presentations. The three hammer throwers basically look the same. Yeah. The three swimmers basically look the same. Shorter bodies, there, yeah. <laughs> um, bigger feet. Uh, so at that level where you need every advantage to be the best in the world and win a gold medal, and if you're second and third, the uh, physical variables that contributed to that performance have to be optimized, and it's why we all look different. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. Uh, something that's coming up for me as, as we're talking about this is the pelvis's influence or the orientation of the pelvis and that's influence on spinal positioning and ultimately injury. So we, we see, you know, hip hike, we see rotation. Um, how much have you explored that influence as far as it's translating to any number of spinal injuries? Um, you're going to have to give me an assessment. Well, so if I see somebody walking into my gym and I and they're saying, I, I, I notice a very obvious hip discrepancy. And so my natural instinct is like, what, what, what can I do with this person? What can I not do with this person? Maybe there's no expression of, of back pain yet. We obviously, we don't, it looks to me like there's a, there's a loaded gun here. I'm like, ah, should I be, should I be playing with fire, even though I, I can see a very, you know, obviously relative how big the discrepancy is. So I'm curious um, if you've saw, if you've seen like, hey, if this, this expression of hip orientation is very likely to lead to that spinal injury. I understand your question now. I would have two answers and they're really quite different. I remember a number of years ago, I was uh, consulting with an NBA basketball team and the team doctor and myself were there at the training camp before the season started and we were watching the players play and just talking as we do amongst ourselves. Oh, I think so-and-so, we have to watch that knee. I think that's going to become injured and someone else would say some other injury. And I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Let's lay a bet. So we both wrote down on a piece of paper who we thought, who we thought would get injured that season and what injury it was going to be. 
and we agreed that we would seal it up in an envelope, put it in his desk, and pull it out after the season. Uh, we were right for three out of five, I think it was. So that suggests that what our eyes saw was exactly what you're seeing mm. people come into the gym. We've also tracked athletic groups and occupational groups doing exactly this. We would follow them. We took the Toronto Police Force ETF, the Emergency Task Force. There were about 70 men, all men, and very steady employment. No one quit over those five years. We, we followed, uh, we, we did uh, health profiles before we started. Their movement competency on squat, lunge, lifting things, and that sort of thing. And we also tracked a little bit how they trained. Are they in the weight room doing 10 burpees, 10 Olympic lifts, and something else, or how, however it was they were training? Uh, over those five years, we tracked the musculoskeletal injuries, and in particular, the back injuries. We've uh, seen uh, in certain sports as well that there are predispositions. I read an article uh, just the other day. We had said for years uh, that the flatter your back, and we measured this experimentally, by the way, we, we screened something like 250 students at the university, and we measured the most lordotic ones and the most kyphotic ones, the, the, the yep. flatter backs. The ones who had flat backs actually stood with less stress, but when they sat down, they had more stress hmm. versus the ones who had a lordotic spine. They stood in the elastic extensor stress, but when they sat down, they had less stress. Interesting. It was, yeah. And then we gave each group's corrective exercises to see if we could de-stress their spine. And in fact, with the hyperlordotic ones, we did. So uh, that that was uh, a... Uh, so what exercise would you have prescribed for someone who's hyperlordotic? It was a Czechoslovakian urologist. He had a program where he said, if you're hyperlordotic, you have tight hip flexors, tight being his word, yep. or short, and then you needed more gluteal uh, horsepower. Yep. The flat backs, you would, uh, they, they had tight abdominals and weak backs. Hmm. So you would stretch what is tight, strengthen what is weak, according to the uh, Yonda program. And uh, that was the first proof that it worked. Hmm. And so we trialed them and we actually were able to change their elastic equilibrium when they were standing. So that's a phenomenal intervention though, because you know, we'll often hear people speak about the minimal ability to change somebody's posture, the resting posture. But if you guys actually did it with some really simple interventions, because I hear all the time people like, can't help somebody you know, obviously you can, you can hypertrophy somebody's muscle, you can change the relative length tension relationship, but you're not going to make a drastic change to someone's resting posture because there's so many factors, right? People are like, well, there's, you know, there's lifestyle factors, there's stress factors, there's so many intervention or, or potential factors. Right. Uh, that was published in Physical Therapy. It was the most downloaded journal. Huh. It's interesting with uh, corrective exercise. We, we've done quite a number of trials over the years. One I remember on uh, hip mobility. And uh, we took, um, who has the stiffest hips in Canada? The hockey players. Yeah. <laughs> They're somewhere around the fifth percentile on a range of motion typically. But one of my PhD students was an outstanding 
uh, clinician in uh, training hip mobility, and she trained in these very stiff hockey players, 5% um, in the uh, uh, population yep. spectrum now, fifth percentile. Um, she stretched muscles, nerves, fascia, uh, joint capsules, really good three-dimensional stretching of the hips. She moved those hockey players from a fifth percentile up to something incredible, like a 70th percentile. Wow. So yet again, she proved that the corrective exercise could make a physical difference. But here's what we learned, and we learned this in other studies as well. Do you think it changed their movement? No, and I was going to say, did it increase the likelihood of injury? That would be my question. Or did, did you, oh, you're you're right on. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right on. So you know, I I know sometimes I would go to my kids' sports and I'd forget my eyeglasses or I couldn't see the numbers on their shirts, but I I knew who every player was by their movement. Mm -hmm. Sure, exactly. So everybody has a movement signature. You can change the range of motion of some of their joints. Do you think you changed their movement signature? And the answer was no, we didn't. So now we get into the argument, is movement a physical state or is it what the neuroscientists call an engram? An engram is the yeah. tape that's in your, yeah. so walking is in your spinal cord. More complex engrams live in your motor cortex. And we see this with injury. We, we talked about this. Pain and injury corrupts your engram. Yep. Even when you're healed, once again, you're still operating and moving with a limp or for a back, for example, we have to retrain the movement. And that's the key. The hip mobilization study, even though we gave them the ability to move their hips and they didn't, it's because we now have to overwrite their current engram right. the new one and that's what a lot of trainers don't get so as it would have to become a period of of conscious incompetence and like i need to move toward unconscious competence right, right? we're like a yeah so if you're an athlete learning a new movement skill whether you're a soccer player or <laughs> uh, uh whatever uh you practice it over and over in quite a robotic way mm -hmm. so think of martial arts you do the movement slow and then you speed up the engram until you get to competitive speed but you do it over and over and over again you're writing that engram yeah. we also know that if you add load you strengthen the representation and load creates a stronger engram visualization you rehearse the movement in your brain you strengthen the engram so your neuroscience has taught us a lot about right this. If you can strengthen the engram and then repeat it enough so it becomes automatic, it default it, it becomes the new default movement pattern. So say we have a patient here and they uh, their first movement is just to collapse their spine and move. And yet they've got a disc bulge. So they will remain in pain until they remove that stress concentration. So we will go over with them how to move in a spine hygiene way, you know, move their hips, drop, step, turn, pull, flex, step, you know, move uh, well. Two o'clock in the morning, the baby's crying. They get up and pull the child out of the crib. They don't have the new default software going yet. I blow up their disc and they're right back to a, a symptomatic patient again. All the training was for naught. Yeah. So the, the key is to, yes, become a robot and then flow we call it a flow state mm -hmm. flow into a new default uh movement pattern 
So I think we've proven the various layers of this and reprogramming movement is the hardware. Changing movement is hardware and software. It requires such a level of um, presence, right? I need to be conscious and present in, in everything that I do. And so few people are able to do that in any aspect of life, certainly as much as is necessary to change a postural position. I know I, I've had some patients where I've shown them the stress concentrations from a certain move and it fires off acute attack after acute attack. And, you know, they come in, oh, I've got chronic back pain. No, you don't. You have repeated many acute insults to your spine all day long because you keep picking the scab. If you stop picking the scab, the chronicity goes away. You don't have chronic back pain. Right. You just keep doing this acutely over and over again. I've had some patients who've never had another acute episode. Immediately, they had that mental ability to personality. And then other people is so frustrated. Yeah. I get a phone call. I've blown my back up again. Oh, what were you doing? Oh, I did this. And I said, well, you know what the pattern is. Yes, I know. I know. It's a personality type, right? We experience this in coaching. is like certain personalities, you can give them anything. And they're like, I got it. And certain ones, like you can coach them in any way. They just won't get it. <laughs> All right, I guess we're gonna we're gonna do it. But I'm not holding your hand, like, yeah, but yeah, uh, you know. And you see this all through life. Uh, I don't know why this popped into my mind, but but it did. I remember being a young teenager, and I was stealing my mother's cigarettes, and uh, she she didn't yell at me. She stopped smoking that day. Now is it? Hmm. Now a lot of people couldn't do that, right? But she just had the personality that type. Yeah. So, you know, it, we see it all through life. It, it comes right back to the essence of bodybuilding and the discipline that people have to, you decide to do it. It's non-negotiable. You just do it. It's done. Yeah. Talked a lot. Covered a lot of cool things on back pain. I think we've just basically started to scratch the surface. Is there anything else that we should cover today so the audience leaves with something? I just want to make sure we don't miss anything that's super important to you to share. Not really, I don't think, from a, a, a back perspective. Again, as I, I said earlier, I'm, I'm just fascinated when highly successful athletes can make that decision and walk away. You know, Muhammad Ali couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And as much as, you know, he's an absolute hero of mine, life would have been different for him. And uh, you did it. A few others have done it. Uh, I think of GSP. Yeah, Dorian Yates is a good example. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, for sure. He seems to be. Uh, He's fantastic. Uh, we spent a month with him in in Spain in this year, and phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Yeah, and then we see other guys who are just uh, a tragic story. Yeah, I think it's just an identity thing. It's, there's nothing. I I speak to some of the guys currently, and like, what else would I do? You know, I'm like, oh, and I could get. I understand the fear. Like I've so, and you know, it's funny to see some of the old guys who were like the, the early nineties, late nineties bodybuilders still lingering around local bodybuilding shows. Cause like, that's where they're important. That's where they get their praise. That's where they get their accolades. And I'm like, dude, don't you have something else to do? Like, I just like lingering around, like going to the after parties. And like, I feel so, and I, I feel sorry for them many times. These guys are still on stage with, and, and you know, they don't want to be there, but they have to be there. And that, like, so when I, people are like, hey, you're still going back to the shows? I'm like, man, I have so much respect for everyone in that sport. 
but no, like I'm not, I, I, I don't have any reason to go. Yeah. And it's not any resentment. It's not any like, I'm saying, I just don't, it's not any reason. And these guys don't have any reason to do anything else, which is, which is interesting. You know, I hope they find it. I hope they are happy and and I, it's probably just funny because that's one of the questions I get asked maybe most from, I get a lot of athletes that contact me and say, how, do you, how did you change? How did you transition? Um, it's, for me, it's just like I, I put a lot of time and effort into, I think it's also, I had a lot of inadequacy, internal inadequacy stories around my level of education, my my understanding of all of it. And I was like, well, I want to be good at this. So like I did the physical part and like now I want to do the mental part and I just pursue that now. And I, like, if I could curate my life in a way that gives that, because that's the new goal. So the goal is really two prongs. Like, I want to have the family that I didn't have. I want to have an education that nobody ever helped me. So then it's like, pursue that the same amount of focus. I love hanging around great people. Likewise. Absolutely. Pleasure. Expand. All right. That's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for being here and giving us your time, attention. And ultimately, um, we are here to support you in understanding how to build a body that you absolutely love and that supports life as an adventure. Um, Dr. McGill, as you hear, is just a wealth of information, breaking a lot of paradigms in the process, which I love hearing people who ultimately have done it at the highest level, right? There's there's research, there's application, and then there's the integration of research and application. Dr. McGill is certainly someone who is at the cutting edge of the integration of research and application, which I just love and respect so much. This gentleman has worked on over 245 peer-reviewed scientific papers, several textbooks, and many international award-winning um, awards, uh, including the Order of Canada in 2022 for leadership and back pain. Dr. McGill, you're a gentleman. Uh, I truly appreciate you, your life's work, and I look forward to doing it again. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for being part of the Muslim Intelligence community. For someone who ultimately wants to live your greatest life and support the community around you, I often talk about, like, you're going to become the people you surround yourself with. Let's all lift each other up, share this incredible information with someone you know and love, would benefit from it, and ultimately someone who has back pain or someone who just under benefit from the understanding of a depth of knowledge when it comes to preventing long-term back pain. And thanks once again to our sponsors, Bioptimizers. Uh, head over to their site to get hooked up with 10% off their entire line, which is something that's just a staple in my medicine cabinet consistently. Um, the things that I'm you know, religious on is Mastimes and Magbreak Fear are just always there. Even if I travel, people say, what's the minimal I should be taking when I travel or when I'm on the road? Those are two things that are non-negotiable for me. And if I were to pick only two things, it's probably only those two things, magnesium and uh, digestive enzymes. Um, both I just love, especially as a, as a man getting a little bit older, I, I have to watch my digestion, watch my stress. Those are probably the two biggest things, certainly for me right now, making sure my performance stays and my recovery is on point. Ladies and gents, thanks for being here. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.